From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. At one point in the pandemic, the rate of nursing home deaths in Colorado was the worst in the nation. He told me, Mrs. Gonzalez, Leo just passed away. And I go, what? How the state got to that point, CPR investigative reporter Ben Marcus joins us. Then the true story of political spies who came west to stymie Democratic and moderate Republican candidates. Later, yeah, we'll talk UFOs. A federal report raises questions about extraterrestrial life. CU astronomer Doug Duncan is nonplussed. And a beloved Colorado cookbook is back in print. Biscochitos for everyone. This is the cookie you have at a wedding, at a graduation. This is the cookie. The success of Colorado Public Radio relies on support from active members. Members like you are necessary in order for CPR to be your source for in-depth news and music discovery. Our fiscal year ends June 30th. You can help keep this service strong and help keep funding goals on target with your gift today. Help fuel news and music on Colorado Public Radio now and in the year to come at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. At one point in the pandemic, the rate of nursing home deaths in Colorado was the worst in the country. This was over several weeks last fall during the third COVID wave. How the state got to that point is the subject of a CPR News investigation. Reporter Ben Marcus is here to talk about what he found. Hi, Ben. Hey, thanks for having me again. What made you start looking into this? So I had pitched a story uh, to my editor about just about the third wave. And so this was kind of in January this year. And just to look back at the crazy of it, cases were rising, school districts were closing, Governor Polis tests positive, drives his partner to the hospital. Um, There were a lot of deaths. And I just wanted to take a step back and look at that. And in the course of that research, I stumbled upon AARP has a dashboard uh, and it tracks nursing home deaths and cases over time. And when I plugged in Colorado, I was shocked at what I saw. It showed cases double um, the national average. And then when I took that data myself and looked at it, uh, it, in a five-week stretch between Thanksgiving and Christmas, Colorado looked to be the number one state for deaths per occupied nursing home bed in the country. Just an incredibly deadly, concentrated period of time. What were the factors at play over those weeks? Cold weather, I think, is a big part of it. And so I was hearing from epidemiologists that I was interviewing over the summer last year that, you know, they were really hoping the state was prepared because respiratory illnesses increase in cold weather months when people are forced indoors. Really, the concern around that time was, is there enough PPE? I don't think anybody anticipated that cases would rise so fast that it would overwhelm testing and contact tracing um, the state lab. Um, And that's what our reporting found. So by October 28th, we obtained a transcript where CDPHE, the state health department, told local health departments that the state lab was, quote, largely maxed out. Now, to get this transcript, our attorney had to fight for it. We asked for the recording from the meeting. CDPHE originally denied the request. Uh, Our attorney wrote back, and uh, they eventually released um, this transcript. We did obtain a conference call between just the local county officials about an hour after that meeting, um, and this is what they had to say. 
So I just thought this morning's call was really, was really a red light signal to me that things are really imploding at the state level. And it feels like pandemonium. And that's Joni Reynolds. She's the public health director in Gunnison County. She's been in public health for a long time, uh, well-respected in her field. For me personally, I'm worried for our state. I'm worried about how decisions are being made and what process is being used to make those decisions. Now, a week later, uh, the state announced that contact tracing had been collapsed. So even if you are uh, found to have COVID, your contacts, they were only reaching about half of contacts uh, in early November. Uh, so if you're a worker at a nursing home, you may have been exposed to somebody at a restaurant. You just continue to go to work, not realizing that you had been exposed. I remember at the time all the concerns about PPE, whether there'd be enough of those N95 masks and whether there would be enough ventilators for that matter. But at this point, you are painting a picture of testing and of contract contact tracing collapsing. What was the state's response uh, as the systems they tried to build to contain the virus began to fail? It was to resist shutting down counties. Um, in letters to the county, the state is say into counties that are in the red. So their cases are at such a level that they weren't shut down based on the state's own metrics. <laughs> they wrote that a gradual implementation of restrictions was appropriate. At that same time, the county directors are then writing letters back to the Polis administration, his health department and his administration, basically begging him to do something because they know that these systems are in collapse um, and they need to shut down, especially before Thanksgiving is what they were really worried about because then people get together and there's a risk of more transmission. Uh, Polis resisted that for 15 days. So they had sent a letter on the 5th of November saying, please shut down. It's not until November 20th that Polis moved 15 counties into this kind of new red plus level of restriction. So it wasn't a total shutdown, but it did shut down things like indoor dining. Um, but for many nursing homes, it was too late because outbreaks had doubled over those 15 days. Uh, we profiled a nursing home in Durango called Four Corners Healthcare Center uh, the same day that Polis moved 15 counties, including La Plata County, which Durango is in. Um, they reported their first case that morning. Uh, two hours later, the second case. Uh, within three weeks, the almost the entire facility was infected. Because we know the virus is circulating widely. Of course, that's going to affect nursing homes as well. And as we've known from the start, Ben, older folks are vulnerable to this virus. So as infections increased in these facilities, inevitably... It led to deaths. That's right. And so uh, we talked to uh, Lee Gonzalez. Her husband, Leo Gonzalez, was one of about 1,100 people who died in these outbreaks here in Colorado. Uh, Leo was at the Four Corners nursing home. His wife, Lee, said that she never saw it coming until she got a call from one of the nurses there. He told me, Mrs. Gonzalez, um, Leo just passed away. And I go, what? I come out, What? I mean, I was in shock. 24 people died in that outbreak there. Uh, it was so many bodies that the county coroner told me they had to utilize a freezer truck uh, to hold them all because the mortuary and the coroner couldn't handle it. They were going over there four, five, six times a day in some cases, oh which goodness. is their weekly workload. So we heard Gonzalez express shock there. Were most families surprised by what happened? 
Yeah, I think you have to understand the context of where we're at and what people knew. It happened really fast. And the governor's talking about widespread testing availability. Uh, at the same time, CDPHE is telling a different story uh, behind closed doors to local public health. Um, the same thing was happening with contact tracing. The state was providing weekly data on outbreaks, including in nursing homes. And the, but the growth in deaths was never spotlighted by either the governor or the media. Now the governor's office has some, and the CDPHE say the deaths come later. But we were seeing deaths in December in high levels. Uh, it wasn't talked about much until March after we shared our reporting with the administration. Uh, instead, the governor was touting these systems as world class. In fact, Michael Booth of the Colorado Sun asked a question of the governor on November 4th. Um, you know, we're hearing reports of testing sites being overwhelmed and the governor brushed the question off like we have plenty of testing. Just connect them with us and, and we'll get it. We'll get them sorted. But emails from this period show that there was widespread um, overwhelmed of testing sites all across the state from Broomfield to other parts of Colorado. Um, and we really had difficulty actually finding families who would want talk about this at all. Why do you think that is, Ben? I think that there's still a stigma to it. And so we to were having looking... had COVID at all. Exactly. Uh-huh. Uh, we couldn't find it in obituaries. You know, nobody wrote um, that their family member died of COVID. A few did. And that's how we actually found uh, Leo Gonzalez in Durango is that they did say, you know, the timeline matched up and they did say that he died of COVID. Um, it's also the nursing homes are, are reticent to talk about this kind of thing. I think they're worried about liability. Um, they feel pretty beat up by the media o- over the last year in some cases is rightly so. Uh, but it was difficult to get people to talk on this. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner and our investigative reporter at CPR News, Ben Marcus, joins us to talk about the latest iteration of his investigations into how Colorado caught COVID this time, how it's just hit nursing homes incredibly hard for about three or four weeks during the third wave of the pandemic. So when these families Look back on last fall and early winter, where do they place blame, if anywhere? I mean, is it the nursing homes, the federal government, the state and local authorities that were all tasked in some ways with protecting nursing homes? Who who dropped the ball? And there's no simple answer to that. I think many experts that I talk to agree that the federal government not taking a leadership role is probably the origin of almost all other problems. Um, also, even before the pandemic, nursing homes generally were struggling with adequate staffing and infection control. Um, but by fall of last year, that's kind of set. We know that we know the state of play there. Um, we're six, seven months into the pandemic, and the federal government has pushed uh, a lot of money to states, $1.2 billion to CDPHE alone for COVID response. A very small portion of that went to local public health. Mm. Um, and so to some degree, we believe this is on the state, um, and that's why we looked at their response. We have talked about testing, Ben. That really becomes a big part of this story. Right. Testing is the the key to everything. You test, and then if somebody is positive, they isolate. You contact their contacts. You try to limit the spread of the disease. We found out that the state lab was largely maxed out. Nobody knew that uh, until we reported it. Turnaround times were dreadful, among the worst in the nation. Uh, Enter in this desperate situation in late November a company called Curative uh, that got a no-bid contract. The state eventually paid them $90 million uh, for testing, and they ended up taking over testing for all nursing homes. 
homes and assisted living facilities in Colorado. Uh, The key here, though, is that the state was using this test off-label. So it was approved for symptomatic, not approved by the FDA for asymptomatic. We know with COVID, a lot of cases are asymptomatic. Um, Complaints followed almost in the first week of, uh, within days of curative testing, nursing homes were sending warning emails to CDPHE uh, that something was wrong with the test. Um, False negatives, false positives, long turnaround times. Uh, It still took until January, uh, so months of using the test until it was finally dropped by the state. Okay, and so if you can't rely on the tests per se, then you say, well, contact tracing might help out in this regard so that people can at least be isolated if they think they were in contact, but that failed too? Yeah, they all kind of go hand in hand. If you're, you're not testing and you're not contact tracing, the whole virus containment system has kind of collapsed. The state had touted what it claimed was a kind of quick response task force, strike force, I think might have even been the verbiage. Yeah, and they said it was a national model uh, on November 2nd, uh, and the AARP gave them a a kind of kudos um, for how well the state did. Um, That was before the deaths started to pile up. Uh, Leanne Jolin, the public health director in Durango and La Plata County, um, she only learned uh, as she's dealing with this Four Corners outbreak um, that this strike force is not what she was led to believe. We 100% thought it was a rapid response team. What was it instead? It was a policy group. So they came up with policies on testing and visitation, and they could provide help for staffing. Um, but it's not clear that that really worked either because staffing was mo- was pretty bad here uh, in terms of the national average. What does Governor Jared Polis have to say about all this? The governor declined multiple requests for an interview for this story uh, over the course of months. We hadn't seen community transmission like this, not even in March. Like we we hadn't envisioned that it could, the level could be that high. That's Jill Hunsaker Ryan, his health department director. She did agree to talk to us, but many people did predict this fall wave. That it was going to get bad in part because of the weather conditions, as you said, and the nature of the virus. Uh, I'll say that you've put in multiple requests for Governor Polis, and we await word at Colorado Matters from his office on when he'll join the program for our regular interview. It's a tradition that dates back to the Ritter administration. We're eager to ask him, Ben, about your findings. Thanks so much for sharing them with us. Thank you. Ben Marcus, investigative reporter for CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. It sounds like the plot of a political thriller. Two conservative operatives are recruited to spy on Democratic activists in the American West. Their mission, infiltrate these circles and gather potentially damning information on Democrats and moderate Republicans to weaken their 2020 chances. The thing is, this really happens. The story of Bo Mayer and Sophia LaRocca's attempts to undermine Wyoming politics ran in the New York Times and has Colorado connections. Pulitzer Prize winner Adam Goldman was one of the reporters who wrote this story. Adam, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Your article details how Mayer and LaRocca were recruited by a former British spy. Can you say more about their mission? 
Well, it seems that their mission was to infiltrate uh, democratic circles in Wyoming and uh, Colorado. And it seems that the mission evolved into also targeting uh, moderate Republicans, you know, rhinos, Republican in name only, uh, which um, had become a theme uh, under Trump in, uh, in, you know, in 18, in 18, 19 and 20. Wyoming heiress Susan Gore, I think of the Gore-Tex clothing fortune, was the money behind this operation. Uh, Was it largely her agenda that these two were trying to follow? It seems to be that there were there were certainly indications that it was her agenda, and it might have involved the agendas of others who were who were helping uh, helping uh, uh, guide these these operatives. One one thing that struck out to, one thing that that stuck out to us, and we weren't we weren't able to, to figure out is exactly, but we're still pursuing it. Is who was guiding these individuals? Sophia's not even from Wyoming. Bo is from Cody, but he doesn't particularly have a history of being involved in Wyoming politics. And Richard Seddon, the, the British spy, knows nothing about Wyoming politics. So someone had to be guiding them through the the, the small maze of Wyoming politics. <laughs> uh, but it's a bit murky, it sounds like. What kind of information were they hoping to dig up? How did they plan to use it? Uh, you know, as we wrote in the story, um, as we wrote in the story, it seems that they were just collecting information. You know, that's sort of that's sort of what spies do, whether MI6 or CIA or or, or other countries. You know, you you just collect information until you you need to use it. And at the end of the day, it's not exactly clear what Susan Gore would have done with the information that she was paying for. And you say paying for. I mean, that's what's fascinating. So these operatives, Myra and LaRocca, they are paying their way into democratic circles in many ways to gain this kind of access. I mean, so it's 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 odd to me that they are funding Democrats and moderate Republicans to some extent and perhaps giving them a boost uh, with the idea, I guess, of getting dirt on folks a bit of attention yeah. there don't you I mean, think that, yeah well it's tension and it's irony right <laughs> i mean <laughs> one could say that susan gore helped the democrats win right um if she you know one thing the story the story is clear on is that these donations were made in Bo and sophia's um name uh you know whether we don't know whether um uh, susan gore blessed these donations or not Right. I mean, the interesting thing about donations is um, if you were directed or reimbursed, you know, it's a potential potential crime. And, you know, if there was a pot of money that they were being paid from and that pot of money was used to make these these campaign contributions and they were reimbursed and that could be a potential crime, too. Mm -hmm. Colorado businessman and Democratic activist George Durazzo, Jr., secured large donations from these operatives. What was his reaction when he found out that they were you know, essentially spies? I, I, you know, like a lot of people, they felt they felt betrayed, but also, you know, people have innate spidey sense. And I think for a lot of these people, they, they suspected something might have been off about the about Bo and Sophia. Um, and as the story points out, even before the, the DNC debate in Las Vegas, he even asked Bo if there's anything he needed to know. And, you know, 
they sensed something was off, but whatever concerns they 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 had, you know, they 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 put aside. But I think certainly that um, there are people uh, who they targeted who are angry and um, and like I said, feel betrayed. I want to note that. Uh, the two made a donation of $1,250 to Colorado Secretary of State Jenna Griswold. And uh, we reached out to the Griswold campaign. A spokesperson said that they'll be returning the money. Why do you think the focus was on Wyoming, on Colorado, the American West? Uh, it seems it seems as if the, the Seddon um, found a funder for this broader ambition he had after leaving this group known as Project Veritas. Uh, this, and and I, 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 there might have been a concern that, that Wyoming was going to flip blue like what had happened in, in Colorado. And perhaps um, this was a way to, to, to prevent that. Which, which, is, which is funny because when we were on the ground talking to all the Democrats in Wyoming about this they all acknowledged we're a long way from a being organized enough to organized uh, enough to do something like that it's interesting yeah I, I don't remember any prognosticators thinking uh wyoming is up for grabs um certainly we've seen a swing in other western states was there any sense that the Republican Party itself, the GOP, or President Trump's inner circle knew about these efforts? Um, we don't have any evidence of that. We certainly are pursuing. Uh, we're pursuing any information about prominent Republicans or operators in Wyoming who knew about it, consulted on it, or helped with it. Can you help put this into perspective? Is this a regular tactic in politics? Does this happen a lot, or is this an outlier? Uh, we 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 think this is an outlier. Look, there's a history of dirty of dirty tricks. You know, there was uh, Watergate. You know, uh, Republican Democrats gather up a research opposition research. And, you know, we and my colleague Mark and I were not political reporters, so we actually consulted with our political reporters. <laughs> you know, have you have you ever seen anything like this before? Because um, that's one of the questions we were, we wanted to answer for the story, and I, I don't think we could say it definitively, but certainly it seemed like. It certainly it seemed like an outlier. I mean, here you have a former British spy, right, who recruits these people to go undercover, right, to inf- and create cover stories and infiltrate, you know, the Democratic, you know, party in Wyoming and, and Colorado, and to, to and to what end? It's not clear, but uh, uh, it's it's not something anybody else had ever had ever come across or seen. I mean, this was a this was a, this was a, as the CIA, this, this seemed where the MI6 would, this is like a, would seem to be a, a, a covert action plan, you know, reminiscent of what the spy agencies would, would do. And I think, and, you know, talking with Republicans who were targeted, um, uh, they themselves were, were somewhat a, a shock that they would be, that this would actually happen. So. Well, thank you so much, Adam, for sharing your reporting. It sounds like it'll continue. I appreciate your time. All right. Thank you. Bye. Adam Goldman, investigative reporter for The New York Times, co-wrote a recent piece about two conservative spies trying to infiltrate democratic circles in the West. 
And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with whether the truth about UFOs really is out there. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Paula Williams is transgender and author of As a Woman, our pick for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. It's a fresh look at the gender gap. She has no idea how much harder it is for her than it is for the guy in the Brooks Brothers jacket in the office across the hall. I know. I was that guy. Tickets for Wednesday night's event at CPR.org slash Turn the Page. Supported by Wanabo Love Keller Mendenhall Smith Wealth Management Group of Wells Fargo Advisors. Denver International Airport will soon get a new leader. Mayor Michael Hancock has nominated Phil Washington to take over as CEO as construction drags on at DIA. CPR's Nathaniel Miner reports Washington has a reputation for getting big projects done. 2009 was a tough time for the Regional Transportation District. RTD was supposed to build more than 100 miles of passenger rail across the metro, but projects were over budget and the Great Recession had slashed revenue. Nothing was under construction. And then Phil Washington took over as the agency CEO, and he started to repeat a new motto. Build as much as you can, as fast as you can, until it's all done. And that became our sort of rallying cry, and we did. About three-quarters of the Fast Tracks rail lines are now open. Four rail projects are still outstanding, including the high-profile line to Boulder and Longmont. But Washington's success at RTD landed him the top job at Metro in Los Angeles, where he oversaw another massive transportation expansion. Now he's back in Denver, and Mayor Michael Hancock wants him to take over at the airport, where he'd be one of the highest-paid city employees, with a salary of more than a quarter million dollars. Quite frankly, I wanted the best manager and best leader I could find, and it's Phil Washington. It's a crucial time for DIA, one of the biggest economic engines in the state. A big revamp of the Great Hall is more than $100 million over budget and delayed by years, echoing where RTD was more than a decade ago. Hancock says Washington will be able to get that back on track. I have tremendous confidence in putting them in the hands of Phil Washington because I know he's going to to advance them and advance them with a great deal of uh, commitment and sense of urgency to get them done on time and on budget. Washington is carrying some baggage from his time in Los Angeles. An L.A. Metro employee recently publicly alleged corruption at the agency. The L.A. County Sheriff is investigating those claims. Washington denies any wrongdoing and says the complaint is coming from an employee upset over being disciplined for poor performance. I cannot please everyone. Uh, you know, I grew up in the military under the command of uh, General Colin Powell. He used to say, good leadership means pissing people off sometimes. Uh, and that's what happens. Hancock says his team has vetted Washington and stands by him. Former colleagues like Nadine Lee also support him. You know, while I can't really address that specific case, what I can say is that Phil Washington is a man of tremendous integrity. Lee worked with Washington in both Denver and Los Angeles and is the new CEO at Dallas Area Rapid Transit. Lee says Washington's knack for building consensus and leading large organizations will serve him well, even though he'd be new to the aviation industry. He'll figure out where the airport needs to go, and then he'll get everybody organized to get there. Washington says his top priorities are to accelerate construction projects, encourage real estate development near DIA, and to use the airport to help get young people into the aviation industry. I'm psyched to be here. 
uh, I could have went to any number of different places in the transportation space. And, and I decided to come back to Denver. Washington will appear before a Denver City Council committee later this week. A vote to confirm him could happen next month. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. We are scheduled to speak with DIA's outgoing CEO, Kim Day, and we'll bring you that interview soon. The federal government says it has a slew of mysteries it can't solve. The sorts of mysteries that thrill daydreamers, conspiracy theorists, and scientists. Are there unidentified flying objects buzzing around us? In a report last week, national security officials released a study of sightings dating back almost two decades. Now, they didn't declare the existence of alien craft, but they didn't rule that out either. Astronomer Doug Duncan of the University of Colorado has spent a career thinking about extraterrestrial life, and he has some thoughts on these revelations. Doug, welcome back to the program. Hello, Ryan. Thanks. In this federal report, researchers said there were 143 cases that they couldn't entirely explain. And they honed in on just a number of them where people saw things that didn't match any known human technology. What do you think of of those cases in particular? So, Ryan, I was completely underwhelmed. Okay. Uh, But not surprised because I have been fielding UFO reports for decades and they're always kind of fuzzy, indistinct. The great astronomer Carl Sagan once said, extraordinary claims deserve extraordinary evidence. And the evidence I saw was, was certainly not extraordinary. You know, just one example, this, this black thing with the aura around it that moved really fast. People realize the pilots didn't see that. They didn't look out the window of their canopy. They saw it with an infrared camera. Mm. And astronomers use infrared cameras. I can tell you that the glowing aura was a camera artifact. It's inside the camera. When we use an infrared camera and there's a strong signal, the pixels around the object glow. It's, it's an artifact. And, and it, it turned, moved really suddenly. Well, after a considerable analysis, we could see there were some faint things in the background. And they all turned and moved fast. So how do you get something in a picture to all move? Yeah. You move the camera. Okay. This stuff was happening inside their camera. It was not, it was, it was not aliens. And, you know, and there's another thing going on that I think we should be clear about. The government often does not want the true report out. And the reason's very simple. Um, we develop things in secret, stealth bombers. Um, in the 40s and 50s and 60s, we developed the U-2 spy plane and high-altitude balloons to spy on the Russians. Oh, so wait, what you're saying is that... This may actually be U.S. government technology that could be being spotted, that behaves in ways we don't recognize. Uh, and then and, and the government's like, look over here at UFOs course. so that oh, you yeah. don't actually see the what The last thing they want is somebody to say, hey, look, I, I think I spotted us spying on the Russians. And they <laughs> okay. would much prefer that the stories about the UFOs go on and on. And sometimes they have to do things in secret. So you think that the government is trying to distract us, or is that that's just a supposition on your I, part? I think that's a, a part of it. Okay. We do have to do things in secret, but the biggest part is how hard it is to figure out a weird thing you see in the sky. Mm-hmm. And, 
I mean, it was fascinating as you described it, that, that it was almost like infrared lens flare, that the camera itself, That's what right. is doing the observing? Oh, there are contribute. so many camera artifacts and, and engineers and astronomers know that. Public and pilots, not so much. Professional photographers know that. You had a recent experience with something suspicious in the sky that got your own neighborhood riled up. Tell oh, absolutely. This. The front range UFO. June 15, my wife and I are out walking and I look up and off to the side of the moon is this tiny white glowing dot. And it looked like Venus, but it was too bright to be Venus. And, and I'd never seen anything like that. So what did I do? You know, what do you do if you see something weird in the sky? First, is it moving? So I lined it up with a telephone pole and I observed it was moving very slowly, Okay. but too slow to be, well, you know, how fast something appears to move depends on the distance. But if you don't know what it is, you can't judge the distance to something in the sky. If you don't know the size, you can't judge how far away it is. So, but it was moving slowly. And I said to my wife, keep an eye on it so it doesn't disappear. I'll run home and get the binocs. So I got a pair of 20-power binoculars, and we looked at it, and it was a little white glowing dot with a black thing in the middle. Okay. And it was still moving very slowly. So I said, dear, we've got time to get the telescope. So we marched home. <laughs> we got the telescope out. We zoomed in, and it was a giant high-altitude balloon, hmm. a balloon as big as the CPR studios. Uh, but we found out later that it was 10 miles high in the sky. And the little black thing was the instrument payload underneath it. So I posted on uh, this, this software site called Nextdoor Flatirons, where people report, you know, mountain lions and things. And there were dozens and dozens of UFO reports. But I reported what it actually was. Uh, Matt Benjamin, who's a guy who used to work at Fisk Planetarium, took a beautiful picture. And it was a balloon with a payload and we tracked it, and a few days later, it went all the way to Nebraska. It was an identified flying object. An identified flying yes. object. The feds call this uh, UAPs, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. But uh, there, there are a couple of takeaways in what you just said there, Doug, which is, one, try to establish if it's moving and how quickly it's moving. And one way to do that is to give yourself a reference point. You must have a reference point because the sky, otherwise there's no reference. Yeah. If you use clouds, you can fool yourself. We might get into that in a few minutes. Could I tell you about my very first UFO, Ryan? The one that you saw? Because I was fascinated to hear that you've taken in reports over, yeah, yes. over time. Well, my first experience was with the reports. Okay. When I was in college, I used to work at the Griffith Observatory, which is the great planetarium in front of the Hollywood sign. Yes. You know, La La Land. Uh, I was the, well, my first job was just to answer the phone and take tickets. And one week... Um, it rained every day for a week, which is very unusual in L.A., and all the smog was gone. And during that time, Venus moved into the evening sky. And so we got 500 UFO reports of a UFO over the Pacific Ocean. I'd put the phone down, and it would ring. I'd put the phone down, and it would ring. I decided to have a little fun. So I would pick up the phone, and what I would do is to say, Good evening. This is the Griffith Observatory. The bright object you see in the West is not a UFO. It is merely the planet Venus, made unusually bright by the clear atmospheric conditions. This is not a recording. And then, <laughs> this is not a recording. Yeah, I did that a hundred times. <laughs> Half the people would cough and hang up, and the other people invariably would say, Oh, are you? 
are you not a recording? And I would go, no, I'm a person. And then they all would say, oh, good. What is that thing out there over the Pacific Ocean? Mm. My actual uh, absolute favorite was the guy who said, it's following me. I saw it in Santa Monica. I jumped in my car. And I drove fast as I could to Malibu. And every time I looked out the window, it was still there. It was following me. Let's talk about clouds. How could clouds trick our eyes? Into you seeing know, something. I, I bet a lot of people have seen this, either from the ground or from an airplane. You see something in the distance, you see clouds, and you're trying to decide what's moving. Is it the thing or is it the clouds? Uh, there was an amazing video um, taken by the Mexican Air Force over the Gulf of Mexico. And this poor Mexican Air Force pilot was chased by seven UFOs in a very distinct pattern, yeah. one and three and three. I remember when this story was in the news. Yeah, and it followed him and followed him, and it, they disappeared in the clouds. They were below him, and then they reappeared, and, and the pilot never figured out, the Mexican Air Force never figured out um, what it was. But months later, after a lot of sleuthing, um, a satellite picture looking down on the Gulf showed a pattern of seven objects, exactly the same pattern they had spotted from the plane, and they were all oil rigs. Oh. And oil rigs, you may know, they often flare the, the gas. The gas, yeah. And people have probably seen that in Denver, the big bright flames, and they were in just the perfect pattern. And so that UFO was identified, but the media tended not to report it because the explanation came two months later. Yeah, the follow-up is often follow up the is most often. important in these stories. You're That's... listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we speak regularly about space science with Doug Duncan, former director of CU's Fisk Planetarium, professor emeritus of astrophysical and planetary sciences at CU. So I think I used in our introduction at the top of the show that you are nonplussed by this federal report. But I want to talk about a different program before we go that is searching for intelligent life in the universe run by NASA. What's the technology here? Well, it's called SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. I have to correct one little thing. It's actually privately funded. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's not run by NASA, but it's been looking for decades, um, or maybe I should say listening, because the primary way that we're trying to see if any intelligent life might be out there in the galaxy is to listen for radio signals. It is a remarkable fact that if you had a big dish, you know, not the ones from home, but the bigger ones that we radio astronomers have, you could pick up the broadcast of CPR a thousand light years away. Wow, that's the power. <laughs> Don't of get our nervous, signal. Ryan. Yeah, but <laughs> if there is somebody out there, it is technically possible to listen to us. And we know it's an interesting thing that people rarely ponder our universe is truly unified. And by that, I mean the physical laws work the same way out at the edge of space as they do here. Mm. We know that because we can look at quasars and see their light, and they give off ultraviolet and infrared and radio. This, in a way, is a universal language, it a is. cosmic language. So uh, aliens could use radio and could be listening, and but we're listening for them. So I recall, I think it was in college, that I had friends who would run SETI on their computers as a, as a way to help. That's true. Is that still true? It is because if it, listeners can think that if you use a radio, there's so many different frequencies. You know, we know we're CPR broadcasts, but what channel are the aliens? 
broadcasting on. So you have thousands of frequencies to search and you've got a lot of processing to do. And the SETI people were clever enough to use home computers, get volunteers to help process the data and listen. Wouldn't it be great to have the computer that finally detects the interesting signal, but it hasn't happened yet. But it's still distributed this way. In other words, you could run SETI and help the project? I believe that's still happening. And you know, one other thing about finding life in the universe, this is not something people usually think about. Yeah, they know we got to search millions or billions of planets, and it might be here, might be there. But you also have to search at the right time. The universe is very old. And if aliens, you know, listened to the Earth or sent us a signal a million years ago, There'd be nobody here a thousand years ago, um, a hundred years ago, no CPR. So a very important thing is if intelligent life is on a planet, how long does it last? And that applies to us. You know, what's fascinating about this, though, is we are using, in a way, a language we know to detect the presence of potentially alien life. We're kind of like assuming that right now Zorkon Matters is airing. And that we're going to pick it up. Is there an assumption inherent in that? Um, I think there is. I think we wouldn't necessarily be able to um, talk if we, if we get a signal. But I don't think that's the most important. I think we really would like to know if life uh, is common if it lasts a long time, intelligent life, and any signal will teach us that, even if it's just numbers, even if we can't speak the language, we'll know that it is a language and not something natural. And that would be great to pick up. And that's really what we're listening for. Well, I appreciate so much the insight here and some of the helpful tools. If I want to see uh, if an unidentified flying object or an unidentified aerial phenomena is something that we recognize or not. Doug, thanks for your time. Always a pleasure, Ryan. Doug Duncan is the former director of CU's Fisk Planetarium and Professor Emeritus of Astrophysical and Planetary Sciences. After a break, a mouth-watering book that is now back in print. This is Zorkon Matters from CPR News. We dust off old cookbooks in our series The Kitchen Shelf, bringing retro recipes back to life. And the very first book we showcased more than a year ago came to Roz Gallegos as a white elephant gift. You know, it's supposed to be like funny prank things, stuff you've pulled out from storage. And so it was kind of a joke about who got it. It wound up being anything but a joke. People take this cookbook seriously. Favorite recipes from Antonito. Antonito's in Colorado's San Luis Valley, where Gallegos grew up. And this cookbook came from the senior class of 1986. One day, Gallegos posted a picture of the cover to a popular Facebook group called Forgotten Southern Colorado. It got a ton of likes and comments. I saw the post, then did the story. Well, all of this has created an insatiable appetite. People were desperate for a reprint. I'm dumbfounded. I believe wholeheartedly from all the emails I'm getting and all the responses when they receive their book and that kind of thing, that it's the culture of it. And almost all the people, most of them, have some sort of a tie to the San Luis Valley, particularly Antonito and 
Manassa and Sanford, Romeo, Lajada, the Conejos County, which mm. is where Antonito is. This is Connie Ricci, a member of the Antonito High School class of 1986. She and a former teacher put up their own money to get the cookbook republished. I just get comments like, oh, my aunt um, lived in San Antonio, which is a little village outside of Antonito. And, oh, my grandmother was from here and my uncle still lives there. And, you know, I lived in the valley until I was 12 and I moved to Vermont. And I think it's just them feeling like they have a piece of who they were originally and who they are all about. The original cookbook was a fundraiser to pay for a senior trip to Disney World, and it was successful. So is the reprint, which is selling like hotcakes. Ricci is, in fact, ordering additional runs. Now, Ross Gallegos, again, who first alerted us to this cookbook, didn't attend Antonito High. She grew up on a ranch not too far away, though, and told me in our story more than a year ago that the book contains many different recipes for the same dish, like a cookie called a bizcochito. Seven recipes. It's not just one. It's seven. So seven different families chiming in about bizcochitos. And if you don't know what a bizcochito is? It's kind of like if a snickerdoodle had anise. But it's so much more refined than a snickerdoodle. It's cinnamon, sugary, anise, shortbready. This is the cookie you have at a wedding. This is the cookie you have at a funeral, at a graduation. This is the cookie you have to celebrate the birth of Christ. <laughs> this is the cookie. Gallegos agrees with Connie Ricci, who helped get the cookbook reprinted. People are hungry for food that reminds them of a specific time and place. Because it's going home. So many people had to leave the valley for generations, for work, for education, uh, like to survive. And now that we have social media, we're connected again. And so when we bring these things up, it's you're going home through your food. You're connecting with like, oh, you're so-and-so's cousin. And, oh, you were at that funeral. And, oh, my gosh, remember this cake Miss Salazar made? And it's going home. Gallegos and her family have already tried the two recipes for sopapillas, the fried pastry. One is described as never fail. So, of course, you got to try those because it says no fail. <laughs> and then I tried another one. And so it was like a taste-a-thon, like, are we trying uh, Mrs. Salazar's sopapillas or are we trying um, Mrs. De Herrera's sopapillas? It was, you know, because it's a whole family thing and, uh, and adjusted for altitude. And so we tried those and it was a... A tie. We couldn't decide whose were better. There's also a recipe for taco salad with French dressing and flavored Doritos. But it's really the desserts Roz Gallegos is taken by, like the piñon puffs, a pine nut sweet treat. Yes, but most of the pine nuts you get in bulk now are from China. And so if you were to get them locally, they are very seasonal. You do not get pine nuts every year. So it was great to see a recipe for piñon puffs, which is cookies. So I'm really excited to do that because I, in the family, I'm the baker. Roz Gallegos of Colorado Springs sharing the bounty of a 1986 cookbook called Favorite Recipes from Antonito. Our conversation in December 2019 fueled demand for a reprint, which is now available. I've tweeted a link at CPR Warner. The two women behind the reboot, Eleanor West and Connie Ricci, don't plan to keep the profits. We're going to give the money back to the community. And Connie has a few ideas. Connie, what are your ideas? Yes, we're going to hold back a little bit of money for a class reunion. There's only 20 people in, in the class. Mm. There's only 20 graduates, so it's pretty simple. 
And so at some point, a couple years down the road, we can have a class reunion. Uh, this year was our 35th year, but with COVID and such, we didn't do anything. And my thoughts were our local senior citizen center, where is a lot of our ancestors and our culture and, and our grandmothers are there, grandfathers are there, aunts and uncles and stuff. I wanted to give back to that particular organization. I would like to contribute to um, some form of a scholarship. Maybe it would just be a one-year one. Maybe it would be like three annual scholarships at our high school, our, our alumni, you know, being from, from Antonito. And then possibly something to our church because our church is pretty rooted here, maybe with their religious education program and give some things for supplies. They're always needing books and things like that. And what church is that? Uh, that would be Our Lady of Guadalupe. It is the white elephant gift that keeps on giving. Favorite recipes from Antonito. At CPR.org, you'll find recipes for piñon puffs, one family's sopapillas, taco salad, and one of the seven bizcochito recipes. Again, I've tweeted a link to the reprint at CPR Warner. And if you have an old Colorado cookbook to share, email us with a photo of the cover, Colorado Matters at CPR.org. They smell like mama's bread On a warm spring day The scent will linger in the air Like when you're cutting hay And the taste, my friend Is without a doubt Just like an angel's kiss It melts in your mouth I've told you all I can There's nothing more to say to explain a soap appeal would probably take all day. I like them soft. I like them hot. I'll take them crunchy. Give me all you got. I like them cold. I just don't care. Anytime and anywhere. Sing along if you know the words. Madre mia. Well, thanks for joining us. And thanks to the cooks in the Colorado Matters kitchen. Carl Bielek. Allie Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner with special thanks to Chuck Murphy. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.